Welcome to the Public Works Nerds Podcast with Mark and Mike. Welcome to the Public Works Nerds Podcast. I'm Mark Culver. And I'm Mike Spack. We're your co-hosts. Today, we're talking about using drones in public works with Brian Simmons. Brian's a principal engineer with Bolton & Mank here in Minnesota, out of Bolton & Mank's Chaska office, to be precise. Not only is Brian a principal engineer, he is a tech nerd like me. Yes, sir. And uh, Brian and I have geeked out numerous times already about uh, asset management, sensors, meters for sanitary and water, and just a little bit about UAV. So I'm uh, really anxious, eager to uh, get into this conversation and learn some more about how we can use UAVs in the public works, work, public works realm. There's a lot here. So yeah. welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. You know, I, when I, I saw I saw you guys you know, start the podcast, and then with the word nerds in it, I was like, oh, I I I got to get in on. That. Yeah, yeah. You're they, you're a nerd. I they're, they're my ilk. Yeah. So so yeah. Talk to us. I mean, give us a little bit of a primer on on your background first of all. Sure. Um, and then, um, you know, bleed into uh, to well, first of all, like, what's the difference between drones and UAVs? But first, talk about yourself and. And how you got to so, you were. so first off, I, I shouldn't be here. I'm a I'm a municipal engineer. Yeah, so that's my training. That's yeah. my that's my experience. Uh, but I've been doing this for 20 years. And to sort of fill in the gaps and keep me from getting bored, I've had some very supportive leadership uh, that saw that I needed to do some other things to keep me busy. Uh, and so yeah, starting at the beginning of my career, there's a handful of things that were like, hey, that's got technology associated with it alongside civil engineering. I bet Brian would like to look into that. And now, you know, 20, 15 years later, a handful of those things have turned into complete, I'll just call them product lines mm -hmm. on their own. You know, so I've, I've dabbled in a number of things now that we as a company do, you know, it's sort of a primary function and, and UAVs reality capture is one of them. So uh, yeah, talk about drones, UAVs, all the jargon acronyms. Yeah. 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 What so, does this mean? So, so everybody knows what a drone is, right? It's, it's, a, you know, a little quadcopter, a little toy. You can go to Best Buy and buy that or. Uh, when when we first started getting into this, the term drones was sort of associated with the the global hawks, the reapers, you know. So we sort of set aside drones as the pew pew pew, the bad drones. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's more entered the public vernacular now. Everybody understands that, and so that's sort of just become accepted. But uh, a UAV is an unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, and the industry is shifting toward SUAS, which is small unmanned aerial systems. And you're going to see that unmanned be switched for uncrewed because it's 2023 and the world is inclusive. So you, how long have you been playing with, I'm just going to call them drones. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> for the purposes of this discussion. We, we can let's just go, say drones. Let's go drones. We can just say drones. Yeah. Um, I started dabbling actually in, in the, the data side of things in photogrammetry in 2013, 2014. Okay. I used to attend uh, Autodesk University on the regular and that particular uh, conference, you know, a lot of education, a lot of showing off software. Um, and I realized that I could use my iPhone to build 3d models. And so I, I got way into the data side of things before I'd ever actually touched a drone. Um, and then, you know, really the, the phantom four, the phantom threes and the phantom fours, which were the most publicly accessible, relatively inexpensive, uh, and fairly technologically advanced. Those were out in 14, 15. Um, you know, we, I went out and I bought one and so I was flying a drone on my own, knowing that once this became commercially possible, we wanted to be into this, or at least we wanted to know how we were going to enter this. 
So for a while I was kind of operating on the fringe. Okay. Um, the real, the real trigger for us as a company was August of 2016. Prior to that, you could operate with a pilot's license. Right. Yeah. I was you, just going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. You could get well, the, the, all these acronyms, but there was a 333 exemption where someone who had an actual pilot's license could operate a drone commercially. And so then in August of 2016, they dropped the, the part 107, which is the, the commercial drone operator's license. In fact, there's two of us part 107 licensed pilots in the room right now. Okay. And uh, that, that was really the trigger for this, this industry. They came out with a separate, you know, drone pilot license a drone certification. And from there, things really took off. So what's involved in getting the drone certification? It's a written test. Okay. You know, it's really not about flying a drone. It's about how do you operate the drone in the vicinity of other aircraft, manned aircraft, because the, the sense you get from the FAA, and this is true, but the drone always gets out of the way. The manned aircraft always trumps you know, so the safety is the drone operator's responsibility. And there are some interesting things to try and separate those two. Like drones can only operate for the most part in that zero to 400 feet. Oh, and general aviation should be 500 feet above. But there are lots of fringe cases where the drones and the manned aircraft will interact. For example, aircraft taking off and landing, obviously they're below 500. Right. You know, so there are challenges working in, for example, a community right off the end of a commercial runway and MSP, you know, or you're in a rural community where somebody has permission to fly below 500 feet, like crop spraying, okay. you know, so then you have to learn how to interact. And that's mostly what the part 107 is about. Okay. So if a public works director wanted to start using, got a drone, wanted staff to start using it, that operator would need the 107 certification. So technically public agencies could operate under a different set of rules. Okay. that they refer to as a COA, a certificate of authentication. Uh, but to, for that COA to cover up an agency, they would need to come up with their own program. So the easiest way is for a, a you know, a city, a county, whatever, to say, we're just going to have our pilots get part 107 okay. rather than come up with their own process and then they're covered. And it, it, and this is a case for any any application where you're doing it for work, like any commercial type of application, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, like what kind of drone would you not need a license for? Uh, it's less about what kind of drone and more about how and why am I using it? Okay. Uh, if I go out on the weekend and I'm not licensed and I take a bunch of pictures, you know, fireworks, and then I turn around, and I sell them to the local newspaper. If I am not licensed, that is against the rules. Got it. But if you, but if you don't sell the pictures to the newspaper, you then you're still on your Instagram. You just, yeah, you just post them on Instagram. Yep. No, I did this as a hobbyist. And there are, there are a set of hobbyist rules. There is a short written quiz for hobbyists, okay. but that's very easy to obtain. Actually, okay. I think both are, but the part 107 is a more stringent licensing process for sure. Right. Is there an online course for the 107 or? There's a, there's lots of study materials out oh, there. Okay. There's lots of study materials. The FAA has a lot of resources themselves. Okay. Especially since, like I said, a lot of it is about understanding where the manned aircraft are going to be okay. and, un, and knowing how to read airspace. Do you have to do an annual renewal? Every two, every two years is a re-up. Okay. Mm -hmm. And during, thankfully during COVID that went from a, a shortened version of the test in person to an online quiz. And okay. it's, it looks like it's going to stay that way. So awesome. We'll call that a win. Yeah. How much does this two year certification cost? Uh, that's free. Oh. 
The, okay. the initial test, I believe, is about 150 bucks. Okay. Yeah, it's not, it's not financially a huge burden. So a, a UAV that would be a drone that would be of quality, sufficient quality um, and capability for actual public works use, you know, whether you're just shooting aerial video or whatever else you're doing, how much would that cost? <laughs> there's a there's a pretty big range. Yeah. Um there's a lot going on right now in the industry surrounding what we'll call blue UAS, blue or green UAS. These are two lists that are being curated. Uh blue UAS is the Department of Defenses and green UAS is a parallel list that's sort of um the industry is policing themselves. But these are both concepts of uh we're trying to look at and identify drones that are have mostly American made parts. Mm-hmm. or are assembled in the United States. Uh, but it, what's really behind it is they don't send data outside the country. You know, they're not sharing any data. So uh, if you're working on a project that has federal funding and they say they follow Department of Defense procurement rules, that takes a whole bunch of drones off the list. Uh, and, and I'll So be- is there actually a fear of like just buying some commercially available drone and that data is unbeknownst to you being sent Yes. To another country. Yes. And I think some of that has actually been substantiated. Wow. And, and here's the bummer part about it is, is that DJI, who makes the most user-friendly drones on the market, the most accessible drones on the market, uh, is very much uh, a Chinese company. Right. Uh, and there is some Chinese state involvement in sponsoring DJI. So, so is this data, do they think this, they've substantiated it, so they theoretically know how this is happening. Is this happening through a satellite connection? Is it happening through some sort of Internet, internet connection. So, so you have to connect drones to the internet for a number of different things. Got it. Um, one of them would be, uh, if I want permission to fly off the end of the runway in MSP, I have to connect the drone to the internet to submit an unlock. And so now I have shared with any number of parties outside of my control where I am operating and when, and I have shared with them a bunch of my contact information and I've done that to unlock the drone. So uh, and that's a sort of a DJI specific thing, but they have their own version of the FAA airspace map and they lock it down because they don't want me to go to Best Buy and spend a thousand dollars and then use that drone in some sort of terrorist activity. And so then they lock it from being able to fly immediately off the runway and the ability to unlock it is how we go there and do work, you know, but I've shared that data and it could go somewhere else. Huh. That's, I mean, it's something that I had never even considered as we talk about using these drones for commercial purposes or public works purposes, that yeah. we, we could actually be sending data to China right. or some other, to Russia or something. Yeah, yeah. Especially our public works infrastructure right. data. Right. Yeah. No, we, we were, well, and those of us that are, that are in public works, we sort of think about that nonchalantly, right? Right. Oh, oh you know, there's what's so important about the locations of my catch basins, you know, how is, how is someone going to harm the public with that? But, I think we maybe take that for granted a little bit. Yep. Uh, also, I will say that it, like as an organization, we, we sort of keep our own data somewhat secure. You know, we, we try not to send a lot of it out. Uh, it, in actually the data piece of this is, is kind of where I want to go because, um, you, you know, it's possible to go to Best Buy, spend a thousand dollars, come out the door with a drone. Uh, in our case, it's probably more likely we're spending between two and five thousand. Um, one of the biggest triggers, and we get way into, we won't go there today, but you can get way into the weeds on the camera types. Uh, and there's a difference between a mechanical shutter, uh, which are, you know, a full iris that opens and closes versus an electronic shutter, which they call a rolling shutter. 
uh, a rolling shutter would go from open from top to bottom. But if the drone is in motion, that can produce a little bit of distortion to the photo. And the reason that's important for us is because we don't take just one picture. We automate the drone into these lawnmower paths a lot of times so that we can cover, you know, a whole project, a whole block, a whole community, and then we stitch them all together. And when we stitch them all together, we want those photos to have the same characteristics, you know, taken with the same optical settings, the same white balance, exposure, all that stuff. So the photos look the same when we stitch them together. So they look like one big picture instead of a hundred yeah, individual pictures. Yeah. Yep. If you're going to apply some type of machine vision to them, then yes. it's a lot more accurate, consistent. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we, we run into that already with, you know, like clouds coming through and you can see the, the light oh, yeah. factors cool. change. Yeah. Uh, we've done a couple of projects where it would be like a five mile linear trail, for example. And if you decide you're going to fly that down to one end, turn around and come back. So you've got some overlap. But the lighting conditions may have changed from when you left that origin point, went down, turned back, came back. You know, when you return to the beginning of that five miles, those two photos might not stitch yeah, because the lighting has changed. You know, the sun position has moved enough. If it's taken you a long time, um, those photos look different. Yeah. And so they're difficult to stitch. Are there best practices like time of day? I think of <laughs> looking over at Tony, our producer, who's done a bunch of photography. Like, I mean, dawn, dusk are like the golden hours for like wedding photos, yeah, that kind of photography, but it's almost the opposite when you're trying to get consistent, well-lit for surveying purposes. Yeah. 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 So, so dawn, dusk, great for drama. Uh, for, <laughs> for photogrammetry and mapping, you want no drama. You don't want drama. So if you don't like so, drama, uh, direct sunlight, not necessarily the greatest because it creates shadows. So an, an ideal capture day for mapping with a drone is, you know, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., uh, overcast, but still well lit. Okay. And so overcast, you know, diffuses the clouds. So then the, or diffuses the light yep. in the clouds. So then lighting is pretty consistent. Um, it, one of your, your questions on here, what are our most common applications? Uh, we are flying mapping flights and taking photos probably most commonly. Um, a lot of times they are to stitch together and a lot of times they are just one-off photos. We do a fair amount of video capture, uh, but a lot of that is decision-making tools or communication tools. I know we're going to make a before and after out of this project, or we're going to render in a proposed improvement. And so we've taken a video flying down this roadway and then our, uh, our visual communications department, you know, will take that. They will map the position of the drone and then bring in a model from civil 3d or something, impose that in there. And then we'll spit that out. Someone could take that to a decision-making body, you know, city council, whatever, and say, this is what it's going to look like. And they say, you know, they bang the gavel and say, yes, we'll spend our money on that. So uh, it's a lot of decision-making tools externally. Mm -hmm. And then internally, we use it to augment survey. Something I, I will jokingly call it faking in survey, you know, I, my, my, I, in yeah. my ideal operation is, is, you know, a surveyor who's out there doing a topo survey and then launches the drone and does a mapping flight to augment his own shots. You know, so they'll fill in around, or maybe there's an, some obscure areas, you know, there's a dog barking behind a fence behind the house and we don't want to crawl back there. But then later on during the design of a project, we might need to dig that person's water service close to that fence. And it's really helpful for us to be able to see from the aerial perspective that there is a paver patio right there in an in-ground pool. Okay. We need to be careful what we're doing excavating there. So how accurate can you, are you physically drawing in? off of 
the the aerial into the survey or how what does that look did, like? Did somebody pay you to ask that question? No. <laughs> and so a- accuracy is something that I have spent a lot of mental energy on. Okay. Uh, I, there's a lot of people in our organization that have spent a lot of mental energy on talking about. Uh, you guys asked me how I got started in this. In 15, right before the licensing dropped, uh, we formed a UAV committee uh, and a handful of people within Bolton and Bank, myself included, and some surveyors uh, because we wanted their input, right? Yeah. We wanted to be able to talk about accuracy of data. And so we kind of landed on two separate worlds. Uh, one of them is the photogrammetry, the stitching of photos. Uh, and we've got a handful of tools we use like ground control points and augmenting that with actual surveyed shots to bring those, the accuracy to a higher realm. Uh, we, we have an accuracy statement where I would tell you from just straight up photos, I can place those points in a one foot box. So I won't guarantee those within a foot relatively, which means in relation to themselves. Uh, we are getting very high accuracies. In fact, if we use ground control on a hard surface like pavement, uh, I, we can get you know almost survey grade. So within centimeters, okay. if we employ all those tools and it's a great day and conditions are ideal, but that isn't consistent enough for us to be able to advertise all photogrammetry centimeter act. Does that make sense? It does. Is anyone advertising? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I actually would prefer, I would prefer to come on here and say that our accuracy statement is whatever those other guys said they could do. We're doing that too. You know, because like there, there are some in the industry that are out here saying, you know, we're getting within millimeters with photogrammetry. And I say, cool, come on up. No. Okay. And and so, so then we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll demo it and kind of pick it apart a little bit. Um, yeah, sort of unfairly, we have a site that we have referred to as our UAV lab that has been captured with probably every scan and photogrammetry and survey product known to man. Okay. So if anybody comes and says, I'd like to sell you a $50,000 drone that's millimeter accuracy, I invite them up to scan that particular site. And then okay, when they send me the data, I can send it back with a, no, thank you. So, or a, hey, this is great. I'd like to buy it. What about outside of just video or Photos, like using other sensors. Yep. So uh, that's a great question. Uh, we, at the same time that we embarked on that, we said a one foot box isn't great. What does a, a true survey grade version of this look like? And so we went down a path that led us to purchasing a half million dollar LIDAR sensor. Wow. Which, which is essentially an aerial laser scanner. You know, LIDAR is light detection and ranging. And so that's a spinning laser that captures its origin point and then captures the reflections of the laser. And with that, we can build a point cloud. And so that, you know, we have various versions of that, both terrestrial. So like set it up on a tripod or mobile based where you mount it to a vehicle. And then this is just another iteration of that where we hang it below a drone. This is not casual. When you've got a half a million dollar sensor below a $60,000 drone way to put it. Yeah, no, it's not casual. We're, we're like, you know, Brian just like sits in his office and chews on his nails and waits for a phone call that the drone didn't crash, (laughs) but it's well insured and we've moved past that. Uh, so that was our, you know, solution for the idea of survey grade. And, and the LIDAR is bonkers because we can, we can collect so much data. This is, you guys hear a theme for me? Yeah. The data is where everything heads. Yeah. So, are you moving towards keeping this LIDAR out every day? I mean, in replacing survey crews? I mean, are you whoa, kidding? Whoa, whoa. Oh. We, don't, we don't displace any surveyors. <laughs> but, but 
there are some very good examples where we, you know, places like um, uh, very, very active county roads. It's very difficult to close that arterial route. It's very difficult to ask a surveyor to walk down that center line with active traffic if you're not going to close it. So there are lots of examples where it's much easier to fly that than it would be to send a surveyor out. There is always some survey involved. We're going to set ground control. We're going to, we're going to do ground uh, verification shots. Mm -hmm. So we're checking in on ourselves with the data. Not, not everybody does this, but this, this is our best practice. And so, um, we'll combine those two into the, the most accurate point cloud we could get. Okay. And I would also think when you're, you're dealing with rivers, wetlands, and want more accurate data in those situations and the surveyors would prefer not to put on the waders or even the scuba gear. So, <laughs> so water is death for lasers. Okay. Wa- water eats laser essentially. Okay. And so we don't get any returns on water or below water. But what that does mean is I get laser returns right down to the edge of the water. To the edge. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a thing coming, uh, right now this exists in two realms. There is a thing called green laser LIDAR, which uses a different color laser. And then we have these, you know, aerial lightweight mobile LIDAR applications where they've taken the laser in the mirrors and they've put it in a compact package. They are just starting to integrate the green laser LIDAR with those packages. Green laser LIDAR is, is the right wavelength to, it's like essentially polarizing. You know, it's the difference between putting on your polarized fishing sunglasses and being able to see through the glare on top of the water. Green laser LIDAR gives us the ability to do bathymetry from above. So you'll get hits on the water and then you'll get another set of hits, you know, whatever you can see below the water. Wow. How far <laughs> will that penetrate? That's a good question. Yeah. I'm not selling green laser LIDAR, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But <laughs> something to test. I, you know, I haven't, I, it's not to the point where we would buy one yet. Right. Um, one of the $500,000. Yeah. 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 Like <laughs> but it's not casual, but for the fishermen, uh, fishermen out there, you might get more accurate. Right, right. <laughs> well, but bathymetry is, is a very real industry. Mm-hmm. You know, we partner with, uh, a couple of firms that do a lot of, you know, I, I don't know what we'd call that area. I don't know if it's really shoals or not, but the sort of the shallows of the South end of Lake Superior. And yeah. I mean, that's truly coastal engineering type mm-hmm. things, right? Putting mm-hmm. up piers and things to support the shipping industry and all of that. They have to handle, you know, everything but major tides. And so we've done some laser captures to support them, LIDAR captures, but, you know, they had to add the bathymetry themselves. Okay, cool. So it, one, one interesting thing that Mark and I talked about previously that I kind of want to add to this is that being involved in this industry now for a couple of years, you know, we're almost 10 years now. Yeah. And, and drones have gone from sort of the toys spectrum mm-hmm. you know mark and i were joking about the, the hype curve prior right. to this and right. and and I, I won't i won't spend a lot of time talking about that but on this particular graphic you know we're, we're reaching the 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 slope of enlightenment right uh and we're headed towards the plateau of productivity that that the marketing company that came up with that graphic is going to sue me someday if i keep talking about this but um you know we we've, we've gotten to the point where they're not just novelties we're actually employing you know drones and uavs on a daily basis to replace situations where people can't go or humans can't go safely, you know, or captures that would have taken us a long time. Okay. You know, one of the things that, yeah, there you go. So we're, we're through the trough of disillusionment. We'll, we'll show this in the, in the, in our uh, episode notes, but it's, it's a, it's a cool little, yeah. I, I love the, the uh, terminology, you know, like, like he was saying it, you know, and it's just basically kind of mapping out acceptance of new technology and, and, um, uh, 
applications and things like that. And, um, you know, it starts with this technology trigger, which is your zero and your XY, uh, scale. And then, uh, you go up to really high, uh, ascension up to the peak of inflated expectations. Yeah. Um, what, and, do, you mean, what do you mean? My new iPhone can't do everything for me. Right. Right. Um, and then it dips down pretty quickly again, almost the same slope down to the trough of disillusionment, <laughs> uh, which is a, I love that. Why did we spend half a million dollars? Right. The trough. Yeah. And I know <laughs> we're wallowing in the trough. I've definitely wallowed in the trough. And then it goes about halfway up to where the peak of inflated expectations was that it plateaus. And, and that's the slope of enlightenment is that it, uh, ascension back up to the, the plateau of productivity. So once you've actually, you know, really honed in the technology and kind of mastered it, now you're at this uh, plateau. I, and I think that's a, just a great way to talk about new technology and applications in yeah. general, you know, and I think it really manages our expectations for it. It helps us really, it, it, it makes us laugh about it a little bit, you know, puts it in a little bit of a humorous uh, tone, but it does help us really manage our expectations of how is this adaptation going to occur yeah uh, for anything new so so where are we in the in the in the uav market where we are we clearly in that plateau of productivity or are we still in that slope of enlightenment we're, we're in like the first just the very in, the first inches of that plateau of productivity yeah. where where we know what we can use it for uh we have some idea of the limitations and also the the trough of disillusionment is behind us you know we've been disappointed at some things that we thought we could capture and we did it and then it didn't work and so now it's like, here, here are the actual applications. Here are the things that we're, we could do all day long. And so let's start, let's start doing them. Okay. So, I mean, one of the first applications I heard of probably 15 years ago was getting out there on bridge inspections and just mm-hmm. instead of need bucket trucks and all the harnesses yeah. and stuff. Um, so kind of that inspection level, we have some surveying applications. We have some kind of graphic simulations. What are other areas that can be applied to a public works for kind of using these. One thought I've had is we had Mark Ray on the podcast. Talking. I'm, I'm such a fanboy, Mark. <laughs> I can't, I can't miss an opportunity to say that. And in, in talking about just kind of the disaster response and yep. kind of my brain has gone to, I mean, in a military application, we're flying these UAVs across the world from yeah. a command center. Is there kind of an application? for like sending the UAV out the top of the public works building, but having those video feeds into a command center or yes. could my team just sit around and like at our staff meeting say, oh, we wanted to check out that thing over on X property and quick send the drone out and like get the live shot as we're sitting in our staff meeting talking about it, like to answer the question real time. Are there things like that so that we should be thinking about? So there is, there is one yes to almost all of that. Yes. I'll tell you that the aerial perspective, you know, like the advent of Google Maps and the accessibility to satellite imagery, you know, I I think that sort of changed all of us internet users, I'll just say, right? I know all of a sudden I could access an aerial photo of my own home, right? I could look in my neighbor's backyards. Drone imagery and the stuff that we do with mapping and stitching takes that to the next level, okay? Because we're flying at a much lower altitude, almost regardless of how crappy or nice the camera is, right? Whether it's 12 megapixels is sort of the the bottom of the range, you know, and we dabble up into the 80 with like a Sony a7R4. That's almost too much data, honestly. Well, yeah, your file size is too 
Yeah. Darn big. Yeah. Oh, trust me. Yeah. We're, we're, I, IT doesn't like us for this. <laughs> we, we have our own, so we have our own storage devices and well, our, our own server for this stuff. But in drone imagery, you know, we can identify things like gate valves and manholes and pavement. Uh, we can see joints and concrete. You know, it, it's just that next level yeah. beyond the satellite imagery and on a consistent basis. So, so, I mean, are we to the point where we can do, and this gets, I, I think we're going to talk more about data and what to do with the data yes. here, but I mean, are we to the point where instead of driving our streets and doing like pavement surveys and the set and the other, or maybe even sign uh, inventories and surveys, can we use, can we use our drones for this? Yes. Yep. We can. Okay. We can. And, and that sort of takes it into like the asset management realm, mm-hmm. right? You could do updated imagery, you know, we can fly it tomorrow and you could do extraction from that stitched photo of your, your assets, you know? So if you don't have time to send somebody out with a handheld GPS, but you want to have some idea of where your, you know, we want to start mapping our, our manholes or our, our underground structures. Yeah. Our manholes, our signs are all of the, that infrastructure, who yeah. cares if you're down to the millimeter, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need that level of accuracy for your inventory system. Well, and there's very much a like some data is better than no data, right? right? Even though there might be higher levels of accuracy, if this is all you got, and especially in our case, if we've already got things, I'll just say in the can, right? We've already taken and stitched a whole mapping flight, a whole a series of photos into one big photo. What else can we do with it? You know, one of the, one of the very first things we did in 16 uh, was for a community in the metro here. Uh, we augmented their entire pavement management plan and their, their process was to send somebody out, you know, and, and it was the same gentleman who I'll just say was probably getting close to retirement. Everybody was panicked about it because this same guy has been doing our pavement ratings every year, right? Yep. What happens when he retires? Yep. How do we bring some subjectivity to this, right? Yeah. And take it out of the, like, we trust his judgment, yeah. but <laughs> how do we move on from this? And, and that's not to speak ill of him, but to say, like, let's apply some science here. And so then we involved that same gentleman, but we flew all of their pavements. We took pictures and then he used the photos to identify where it looked like the pavement was, you know, alligator cracking and in the blocking and the different types, you know, which, where are the distresses the most serious? And then he went out and he drove those, um, with a drone, you can't rate ride, you know, but we're, we're getting there. Yeah. You know, we're getting there. We can put sensors on dump trucks or, or snowballs and we can measure that now. So we've got all sorts of options. The drone, I'll just say the drone isn't always the best tool. But oftentimes it is a very accessible tool. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Bolton & Mink, who is producing and editing our podcast. At Bolton & Mink, we believe all people should live in a safe, sustainable, and beautiful community. We promise every client two things. We'll work hard for you, and we'll do a good job. We take a personal interest in the work being done around us. And at the end of the day, we're real people offering real solutions. So do we have kind of that machine vision AI level of just plug and chug? Like I'm thinking when I was at Maple Grove as a young engineer, I would be driving around and say, hey, that tree needs to be trimmed because it's halfway blocking the speed limit sign. Yeah. Do we have automated tools to be able to say, pluck out (laughs) all of the signs in that we flew on yeah. these roads and say which ones are blocked by trees and then turn those into work orders quickly and over to public works to get 
the tree trimming. Those thing. systems all exist. I don't know that they talk to each other yet. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I want to answer that with two things. One of them is, it's been really interesting to be involved in this industry and sort of spectate what has happened, you know, as, as we came through the trough of dissolution, yeah. right? right? Uh, you know, you see everybody and their brother essentially go out and buy a drone because you can go to Best Buy and buy a drone. And, yep. and now we're sort of at a point where some of those uh, unfortunate individuals are being weeded out a little bit. Um, you have a lot of people that are competent at flying the drones, but they don't know what to do with the data. Right. Or they don't have the ability to do things with the data. They can just hand somebody some photos. That's great for real estate, right? They're not asking for any AI to be applied. In our industry, we are more focused on what is happening with those things after, after they are captured. And so it, ha- it didn't take me very long to figure out that we could have a whole crew of competent pilots, but if we didn't know what to do with the data, it, there was no point. You know, we needed to be able to deliver the data and own the data and be able to certify this is what we're going to use this for and this is what we're not going to use this for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of one consideration. Uh, you asked about AI and machine learning. Uh, right after we did that particular community, we had all these pictures of pavement in various states of distress, right? And so we approached uh, an AI company or, or a fledgling AI company, I'll say. This was, this was 17, you know, so there was no chat GPT. Yeah, right. Uh, but we said, we have this whole data set. Could you train something with this? Uh, and that was a really interesting interaction for me because what they came back with ended up essentially being like a Photoshop filter where they, they recognized what I asked and then looked at our photos and said, well, everywhere where the contrast is different, you know, there's this dark line in the pavement. That's what he told us was a distress. And so they, they met like the, just the very front of what I asked them to do and they delivered this product and that I was like, okay, well. This isn't really an AI, you know, right. I'm going to smack the next person that calls this an AI because it's not, it's yeah. a filter that turns up the contrast and then says, this is how many changes in contrast there are in the pavement on this photo. And they were like, done. And I was like, okay, that's not intelligent at all. Right. Interesting though, that like I asked it this way and they were able to sort of get there, but not in the way that I wanted. And so one, one inefficiency we found in that was that if you do crack ceiling, that shows up as a huge change in contrast, right. but we would consider that, you know, that's, that's protected from the elements. Yep. That is a maintenance activity that we want to do on that. It actually improves the, 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 uh, PI, not the. Right. Uh, right. But from, PCI. from their oversimplified perspective, they saw that as a change in contrast. Right. They counted that as cracks. And so now a street that had recently been crack sealed, they were telling us was in terrible condition. Okay. If public works went out and they uh, seal coated a road without filling in the cracks, that was also going to skew what we could see because now it looks smooth and black. Right. You know, you can't see the cracks as well, but they exist and they're going to cause freeze thaw and a place for moisture to penetrate. So that's a problem. Yeah. So they just applied a simple algorithm, but it wasn't true artificial intelligence. And the way AI was explained to me is think of AI as a toddler. And you walk your toddler out to the street and you show them 10 buses and those buses have variability to them. But eventually there is a point, the first bus, they don't know what a bus is, but at some point, 10, 15, 20, 30 buses later, they understand what a bus is, but they can't articulate the variability. And that's kind of the same as AI of 
you show the AI system enough of what something looks like and you give it that name, eventually it will pick out the nuances and the details, but we don't actually know the brain of the AI and how it's doing it. And it may actually do it different than a human brain. Right. But so what that company didn't do was take all of what bad looks like and train it on bad and then also go what good looks like and train it on good to make sure it was excluding. Right. <laughs> they just said, yeah. hey, this kind of to us looks like the lighting is different. So we're just going to say it's that. And that's just a simple static algorithm. That's right. AI. That's why I jokingly called it a Photoshop filter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turn up the contrast, count the cracks, done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and even internally since 2017, you know, one of the things we will do is we'll fly a drone. You were asking before about drones and like static situations. Uh, you can power a drone from a tether. Yeah. You'll see this a lot in like emergency operations where they can hover a drone over a, a disaster site or whatever it is over the, the emergency response trailer. And they can get that aerial perspective from 400 feet, but they can power it indefinitely. That's one of the, I mean, drones in traffic data collection, we get out and do... 48 hour ADT counts or we go out and we do at least two hour turning movement counts. Well, these drones don't lie. The batteries don't last for hours, let alone days. Getting that at the non-military grade. Right, right, (laughs) right. But who's going to go out there and tether? And then do you have to stand there the whole time it's tethered? And like just the economics blow up where, no, we're going to use other ways of getting this data. Yeah. So where is the battery technology? Where are things currently at with runtimes? Uh, so I, up until now, sort of our industry standard, like the standard tool would have been a, a DJI Phantom 4, right? Which you could buy for $1,500 at Best Buy. They're not making those anymore. But that had a 20 megapixel uh, mechanical shutter camera, and that would run for 37 to 42 minutes okay. per battery. So if you, if you were asked to do a continuous capture, we would have to either send two pilots with two drones and a whole rack of batteries. And then you needed to have overlap between the two, you know, video captures or you needed to tether, uh, where we're at now, sort of our standard drone has shifted to a a DJI Mavic three, which is a little bit spicier meatball. That's like a $6,500 drone, uh, but a a more enterprise grade platform that is the replacement for the Phantom four and a mapping capacity. Uh, and then that'll run almost 50 minutes okay, per battery. So one area where I used, we hired somebody and got us video was we worked, I had a little practice where I was working on school operations, kind of the pickup drop-offs and yeah. what are the walking. And it is absolutely amazing to have that drone footage for a half hour to an hour during either the pickup or the drop-off, just hovering above the campus because you really can see at most elementary high schools, you yeah. can see the whole campus yeah. on that bird's eye view. And it is just so different <laughs> see, from that versus sitting on the street corner, trying to see across the parking lot to what a, so that, yeah, that's just one personal application where it really changed how we operate. So, so one thing that is very accessible right now that we actually do sometimes internally is we'll go out and we'll capture that kind of footage, right? You, we'll try to hover the drone in a static position. You know, it's kind of fun to speed those videos up and watch them. <laughs> and well, yeah. but then the, then the patterns become apparent, right? Yes. You know, to your naked eye when you're just watching somebody at walking pace, you know, or traffic is stopped, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay. But then when you speed the video up, you know, you start to see the 
uh, yeah, where so, the jerkiness is of where is it smooth and where yeah. it's jerky, where real time you don't necessarily pick up on. Look at how long that queue got. Yeah. You know, we didn't see that that many cars back up until whatever, 937, you know, and then in a product like TensorFlow, which is one of Google's publicly available AI engines, uh, we can process that video with stuff that's available for free right now. You could go in there and you could use a pre-trained TensorFlow model to look for peds and look for cars, and then you could draw boxes. And so we could sort of recreate exactly what you're talking about. We, but we could run a, a captured video through a TensorFlow model with some locations drawn like gates uh-huh. and we could do traffic counts. Right. You know, so I could tell you turning movements from a video that we already captured using some software that's out there for free. And, and the pre-trained model thing is an interesting concept, right? They've taken pictures of cars and just run them through a model. And so then you can go out and you can download an, a TensorFlow AI model that is pre-trained vehicle identification. Yep. Yeah. And that kind of, I mean, we're off on a tangent, but that's where this AI stuff is headed. It's yeah. getting pr- those proprietary. It's one thing to use the off the shelf and you're going to get heads and vehicles separated for sure. And you probably are going to get scooters now, but I'm waiting for, as far as I know, there's no publicly available model on FHWA's 13 classifications breakdown. And so who's going to train up that model? And then is it going to be proprietary? Are they going to keep it themselves or are they going to share it? Yeah. And then once Google or Amazon hears about it, are they just going to spin up their own folks to make? And so just, it's fascinating to think about kind of the brains of these systems. And that's kind of the chat GPT where it's forking off of people are starting to realize we need more fine tuned for our application, kind of the, under the sheets, what's the brain of it, the model. Behind closed doors here, we've been talking a lot about chat GPT. Right. Like, this is really cool. How can we use this? Also, how bad does it suck? You know, right. Like we, we, we found a, a number of bugs already, like uh, Manning's equation, right? There's a, there's an Imperial and an SI version of Manning's to, you know, calculate flow. Yep. Uh, if you, if you dig way into chat GPT prompts, like telling it where it is will force it to consider certain things. So if I say on a project in Minnesota, you actually lock chat GPT into uh, Imperial units. Because it goes, oh, you're in the United States. And so then it will use it. it but the problem is it doesn't recognize the uh, 1.0 over N for SI versus 1.49 over N. The two different, there's a, you know, two different versions of Mannings. Uh, and so it will use everything you give it, but it will calculate it wrong because it inputs your information in, you know, feet and inches, but then it uses the non-imperial version of Mannings. And so then it gives you the wrong answer. And, and so you're like, well, this isn't great. Yeah. <laughs> so we could hire an EIT. They could lie to us about what they know. And then they go to chat GPT and say, you know, please size the sewer for this many homes, you know, in the state of Minnesota using Met Council standards and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it'll kick back, you know, that's an eight inch sewer. And if we're, you know, we could be in a bad place if that EIT says, uh, well, I'm positive. It only needs to be an eight inch sewer when in reality it, it needed to be a 12 inch sewer. Yeah. So for us to be able to train our own model, whether you keep it proprietary or not is very important. Mm-hmm. And then running it on our own data is going to be the biggest trigger for ChatGPT, right? ChatGPT works off of a snapshot of the internet in time, yep. which is a problem because we need to be able to point it at our own data. And that, that exists. There are products out there that do that, but not ChatGPT. No. <laughs> you know? So 
on the point cloud side of things, sort of shifted stuff back to UAV a little bit, like yep. when we capture these massive point clouds, yes, it's a data problem, but also um, there is AI that exists already or you can train it. So um, some of our point cloud products and even on the survey world, you can shift it into profile view and you can trace out you know, B618 curb and you can tell it how much of a buffer you want to allow it to have. And then you can, you'd sort of give it a general direction, right? This is the direction that the curb is running in and you click go. And what it will do is it will remove those points from the point cloud. It, it hides them. It doesn't delete them, but it hides them and it replaces that with a smart entity that is lip of curb, gutter, top back of curb, right? And it just marches through your point cloud until it gets to like a driveway cut. And the driveway cut exceeds your buffer and it stops. It says, I don't know what to do. Right. And yeah. then you, you just click past the driveway cut, you go on and it'll march through it again and replace those points with more smart entities. So there's still some human judgment involved, yeah, but person hours being taken out of putting together the survey, that's astronomical. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and from the LIDAR, in most cases, we are comfortable designing from that. You know, you're going to want to check your Z's because the elevation is where you're yeah. really going to get hurt yeah. if you're trying to work from that data. But the, this is, this just underscores the point that like all these people have run out and bought drones, right? And now they're like, I can't understand why I'm not really busy. You know, why has my drone company not taken off? And, and part of where we have been lucky is that, you know, we had this whole built-in customer base, right? Where we had access to tons and tons of data and tons and tons of pilot projects where, you know, I can go find something that's been terrestrially surveyed, topographic surveyed already. And we can fly with a drone and we can compare that data and we have a, a very good check. This is a great site. This is a bad site. So yeah, you can train up your staff to understand its limitations. And that's the important part of engineering is not just taking all right. the output out of the computer, but saying that makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Yeah. You have to question it. You have so to besides, question it. Besides water, um, with LIDAR in, in particular, but where have you, what is a bad site? What, where, where, where don't you want to use your UAVs for survey. So learned. So photogrammetry is a, is a, there's a couple of terms. There's a DTM, a DSM and a DEM. Uh, and these are, these are technical terms. Uh, I think they come from, uh, the ASPRS. I'm not going to remember it. They're, they're like the overarching, we set the standards for mapping. Okay. Right. Uh, a DSM is a digital surface model. A DEM is a digital elevation model. Uh, and a DTM is a digital terrain model. Those are three different products. But when we fly for photogrammetry, it's simply what we can see. So if you fly a site that is a uh, open field, but there is, you know, waist high grasses and that grass might be moving in the wind or folded over a little bit. If we extract an elevation model from that, that elevation model is the top of the grass as it was visible. Okay. That's a digital surface model. You're not going to get any better than that from photogrammetry. And there's no way to process it to a digital elevation model. We could go out there and we could burn the field, right? No, <laughs> we, we've actually done this before. We, we did a project in Red Wing on Barn Bluff where they did a controlled burn and they were doing the controlled burn already, not for us. Yeah. But they were like, hey, we're doing this controlled burn. Also, we think that at one point the indigenous peoples in this area may have farmed Barn Bluff. And so we were like, okay, cool. And we came out there after the smoke cleared and we flew it because it was at that point literally bare earth, right? Mm -hmm. And we were able to look at, and this was our cultural resources staff was involved, but we were able to look at the evidence of some terracing and some farming on Barn Bluff. 
Cool. So we were able to see after they burned all the weeds off and all the tall grasses that there was some evidence of that having been farmed. And you wouldn't, you couldn't stand in there. You couldn't tell. Right. You couldn't see the, you know, the history of those furrows. But when we got above it from the aerial perspective, we flew the whole thing. There it is. Right. It looked like a, the beginnings of an archaeological site. I don't know if they ever found anything out there, but that was a, that was a neat example. You know, so sure we can get to a, a digital elevation model, but that's where the LIDAR comes in is that LIDAR laser will penetrate vegetation. So we get, we get, call it a hazy point cloud, right? When you look at the raw data, you fly over trees, you get hits on all the leaves coming down, you get hits off the branches, the trunk, and then you get hits off of maybe there's some dry leaves or some underbrush, right? Growing. And then you're very, the lowermost, the bottom points. It's not as many millions of points as the laser shoots, but when we process it all the way down, we clean all that other stuff up and we put it on different layers, we turn it off. And so then those bottom most points ideally are more dense than it would have been for us to send a surveyor out, you know, and chop his way through and take a hundred foot grid. Yeah. You know, we're getting points through heavy vegeta vegetation that are, you know, one feet, one foot apart. Mm. So we're getting like a one by one grid rather than a hundred by hundred grid. And that's all the way through heavy vegetation. So that's where the LIDAR, you know, comes in, into play. Yeah. Is that we can penetrate, we can't penetrate all vegetation, obviously, but photogrammetry was going to give you all of that, what was visible. We can process that LIDAR data into a digital elevation model much more easily than the photogrammetry okay. data. That LIDAR, they said it was half a million a few years ago. Yep. Um, I assume technology, especially with LIDAR going into cars more and more, is that price point coming down exponentially? Not on that laser. A little, a little bit. What we have seen are, you know, the, the LIDAR sensors being miniaturized and reducing the quality. So like we've had discussions internally of, do we get everybody iPhone pros, right? That have the LIDAR built in. And I don't know that Apple totally knew what they were doing there. They're like, Hey, how can we improve low light performance? And so they use the LIDAR to set the focus length on the camera. But other developers were like, well, now we have access to this LIDAR sensor. What can we do with it? Mm -hmm. uh, one example I like to uh, reference is there's a, a UK Ukrainian app company called Polycam. Uh, and they have this movement out there. Uh, I forget what it is. It's, it's a hashtag on Twitter. But I think it's Scan the World. Okay. Uh, but they've made uh, their product, their premium product available in, you know, essentially war-torn countries right now. And they're encouraging people to go out and download their app and scan monuments, right? Scan parks, scan statues, scan everything. And so, you know, they're, they're encouraging people to sort of create a digital record in case things get destroyed. Okay. And so it, like on the, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, which makes me feel a little entitled and safe and appreciative to be, you know, an American, I go on vacation and I use polycam to scan the lion statues outside of Edinburgh castle. I think it's super cool, you know, and then I'm able to take that file and like send it to a 3d printer. So the, the iPhone LIDAR much more shorter range, much less accurate, mm -hmm. but you know, the best camera, the best sensor is always the one that's in your hand. Uh, yeah. And I mean, going back to the heavy vegetation and uh, sending the surveyor out there and you're getting a hundred foot grid. Yeah. And yes, the high end is getting a one foot grid. Are these cheaper miniaturized versions, are they getting a 40 foot grid or a 50? I mean, just the comparison of what's good enough. 
yeah um so start to do the economics on it so it, like if you do the math you know we're into we're into our lidar sensor for you know, something on the order of like five hundred fifty thousand dollars, right right now i could go buy a different lidar sensor hang it under a smaller drone that package is about 70 okay. um they will out the gate claim the same accuracy but in practice it's it's less mm. you know even when we apply all of the ground control and the survey you know verification shot tools it still isn't going to be consistently as accurate. It is better data probably than you have. Yeah. I mean, it still could be much better than if you're sending out a survey crew to economically yeah. get the it's a, point. Yeah. So like undeveloped sites, right? Large tracts of land. Um, if we don't have any data on that or it's changed significantly somehow, you know, we'll go fly LIDAR or one of those cheaper LIDARs actually would be a good application for this. And then you can do initial earthworks you know you could lay out a development in an undeveloped tract of land very reliably from that lower powered lidar you can use our higher powered one too but mm -hmm. i'm trying to can you put in perspective so let's say maple grove was 36 square miles mm -hmm. so by six yep well well minus a little chunk of it okay but yeah. So, yeah i mean <laughs> what if a public works director wanted to have his own city flown point cloud the whole deal how what is the aspect ratio and how does that translate is that an operator flying it for a year a month 10 years how much to get their own topo done so if it was just the flying logistics for 36 square miles uh with a quad rotor drone right which is something with four propellers that flies yeah uh you're going to be there for a couple of weeks. Okay. That that might not be the best application for that. If we were talking about next year's recon or the next three, five years of recons, those are a little bit more limited sites. The other thing we run into is that um, there are some additional rules. And one of them is uh, sort of a liability thing, but the FAA for a long time has said no flights over cars or people. And the, and the actual rule says, sorry, what? Yep. No flights over, no flights over cars or people. And, and the phrase after it says not involved in the flight. Okay. Which has been interpreted a number of different ways. Uh, but where we've landed pretty firmly on is if you're not part of the flight crew, right. It, it, you're not involved in the flight. And so for a while it was, well, if we just put up a sign at one end of town that says drone flight in progress and people drive by that sign, we're covered, right? right. They're, <laughs> uh, and they're involved in the flight. That's, yeah. that's evolved beyond that. But what they have also come out with in the last year is they've, they've classified the weights of drones. Somebody finally said, hey, why don't we come up with an ASTM standard? And a bunch of other nerds at the ASTM went away and played with some ballistics gel and came back and said, well, we think a drone uh, at this velocity or less and with a you know propeller with a rotational speed of this or less, you know, it doesn't cause a serious laceration and it won't kill somebody. So this is, this is, these are your rules. Wow, cool. So, the, so they came up with an ASTM standard for how harmful is a drone. And then FAA turned that into three classes of drones. And so the classes are under 250 grams. Uh, and you, I, you don't have to be able to stop the propellers. And then there's a second class that is up to so many pounds. And I, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but okay. you can stop the propellers. So probably a parachute to lower the velocity as it drops. Uh, and then above that is just like, that's heavy lift. You know, you have to have special permission, but your airframe has been certified by someone okay. to not fall out of the sky. So those are the three classes. Now they're saying those, these three classes, now you can go fly over cars and people. So like internally, uh, right away, 
there's a whole bunch of 249 gram drones on the market. We went out and bought a bunch of those, right? Okay, this is cool. These cameras aren't great. They suck a little bit. But if this is the only thing we can fly over cars or people, okay. So now that enables us to be able to do a mapping flight or a video flight, you know, in a downtown urban situation where we couldn't before to meet the rules. And for sure, for the simulations of just overlaying different design options for a public hearing, I assume that video quality is plenty good. Yeah. I mean, we work with it. We work with it. Those, those cameras are slowly coming up as the, you know, the under 250 gram drones get better and better now that that's a thing. And then we have some of the, like the parachute systems for the slightly bigger drones. Um, that was kind of a fun day. We, we, we were like, we absolutely, it's like the, it's like the egg drop thing. Yeah. You know, all over again. Yes. <laughs> only way more expensive. That's about, yeah. And we got, failures and we got paid to be there. Yeah. You know? right. So just imagine a, a whole group of, of grown men, right. Standing over a soccer field. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at the pilot, Kyle, he's not with us today. You might hear from him at some point, but yeah, he, he's a, he, he's got his master's of remote sensing and yelling at like, Kyle, stop the motors. You know, and he's like, I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, right? we were taught like how we had to, yeah, I had to, I had to pull up the, I had to pull up the manual online to tell him what the stick combination was to stop the motors mid-flight. It's like the cheat code. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> uh, the cheat code you never want. Right. Right. It's, it's the self-destruct code. Yeah. Uh, and so we kill the motors on the drone and falls out of the sky. The parachute activates. And then I don't know what we were thinking. Cause we had a group of guys with a tarp. <laughs> like we were thinking we were going to catch it. <laughs> So, so that the drone would remain intact. <laughs> video of this? I might. Yeah. Uh, yeah I might. Parachute gym might. class yeah. of these guys. I might. I might. But, but so there was, there was just enough wind. So there was not a chance the guys were going to catch it with the tarp. Yeah. But they tried. They ran across the soccer field, you know, chasing this drone as it falls out of the sky. And, and the drone was not undamaged. Uh, I think three out of the four props shattered when it stopped the propellers. I think there was a crack in the landing gear. It, not unrecoverable things. But the whole point was to protect people. Right. Right. The, that drone was below a certain velocity and the propellers were stopped. So there was no lacerations. Nobody got seriously injured. So the parachute worked. Parachute you, worked great. You didn't have like a designated person to drop the, the uh, uh, drone on to see if the propellers no. caused damage or anything? No, for sure. <laughs> for sure. We, so, so we have the test on me out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of these, they call them UAS test sites uh, that, yeah, I don't. There's a long history here. You, yeah. you can Google if you want, but um, the FAA has sponsored these places and there is, there's one in North Dakota, right? Yeah. So they use some of the rural open airspace in North Dakota to test UAVs, test drones with different control systems. So like up there, they have been pioneering controlling drones over the cell network. Uh, and there's another radio system that anybody who is in the aviation world called ADSB, which is where how aircraft transmit their position. But there is a radio network of ADSB antennas around the, around the country, and so they have dabbled with uh, using the ADSB network to control drones. So you can get way belong way beyond visual line of sight, you know, and, and radio connection using that. And and they've been trying to figure out what that will look like for the next standard. Yeah. So real quickly, as we get towards the end of the the podcast here, um, and that that hour went that flew by. Uh, no pun intended. Um, like. We, we talk about flying these drones over and I know you can, like the drones basically fly themselves. So you can pretty much program them, not fly out a stuff like that. Right. Like how, what, how far can the pilot be away from the drone? Uh, so the FAA compliant answer to that, unless we are in a BVLOS, which is beyond visual line of sight, yeah. means that the pilot needs to be able to see the drone unassisted. Okay. So not through binoculars. Uh, there are some 
caveats to that were uh, you could have a visual observer, a VO, that is a designated person that it, in most cases is also a licensed drone pilot. Uh, and you can hand off visual confirmation of the drone between the, I'm going to throw in a bunch of acronyms at you guys, but the RPIC, the remote pilot in charge, is the person on the sticks. He doesn't necessarily, or he or she doesn't necessarily need to ha- see the drone at all times as long as part of their team does. But um, you have to be within visual line of sight. Okay. So this idea of setting up a drone while you're in your staff meeting to go check something three miles away, that's not happening. Under the under the the rules as they have been, no, but we're on the cusp of that changing. You know, okay. you see Amazon and Domino's and whoever else right. dabbling with drone delivery. Right. One of our other staff members lives in an area where they are testing drone delivery, and so he ordered wings from this place just simply to watch them be delivered <laughs> and videoed the whole thing. And and he said this dude drove to the end of his block, right, like flying a drone above a van, and then got out and like landed the drone in his front yard. And he unloaded the wings, and then afterwards he went over and talked to the guy. He's like, well, how is this more convenient? You drove here in a van to change. And he's like, well, we don't have permission to do beyond line right. of sight yet. But you see out there companies being granted exemptions already. Okay. You know, and that's where like Amazon, that's why Amazon has been testing delivery not in the United States yeah. to, to perfect the equipment and the science and then they'll come here. But we see companies being licensed already to operate beyond visual line of sight. Like that, power line inspection. That, that's exciting. What else are you excited about? Yeah, what's the future of this? Like, where are we going next? You know, we talked a little bit about AI, yeah. but the sensing and extracting of data from the imagery, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's compelling to me. I see even the, the smallest of drones now have pretty decent sensor packages on them for avoidance. You know, um, there's a thing that's going to drop for us in September called Remote ID, uh, which is sort of the ADSB, that lo- location information idea, but for drones. And that will place the drones into the kind of the radar world. Where in a, in a small single engine aircraft, you could see where drones are. They had to broadcast their position. So that's a, that's a next step in the safety net. But um, you hear a lot of uh, integrating drones with general aviation. I wouldn't be surprised if someday they lift the 400 foot limitation yeah. when we figure out how to interact. But how, how high do you, do you want it to go? I mean, a higher if yeah. you could. Yeah. You know, uh, it, we deal a lot with these, you know, restricted flight areas. And so like in a five mile circle around MSP, right, they take and they chop that up into little squares and each of those squares has a height restriction. And so if it's below 200 feet or hundred feet, we're usually kind of like, yeah, that's, that doesn't do us any good, right? We need to be above our, our standard mapping height is between 275 and 350 to even get, you know, a spread on the photos for it to be worthwhile. Yeah. So it'd be awesome if we could be higher, but uh, beyond, beyond visual line of sight too, the drone can fly a lot farther than we are. Yep. legally able to yeah yeah so yeah. that 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 would that would be a big step when you can yep. you can do that probably as big as the flights over cars of people have been for us right well yeah like mark said the time flew by uh this was great i learned a lot so thanks brian and it's fun to geek out on this stuff thank you guys so much yeah. for having oh this has been great and and i think there probably will be some uh additional opportunities to talk about uavs and some drones as uh, some of these advancements occur too so love it I, I i really particularly want to talk about someday in the future um and we touched on it a little bit but that marrying of the of that d- data from the uav into our asset management system and and how do we how, how do we make that better realistically i mean you know and and the logistics of file size and all the data and this that and the other but but 
what are you, what can you actually pull from there that's reasonable mm-hmm. and, and usable? Yeah. You know, I think that'll be a good conversation too. Put, so. put a pin in, in multispectral. Multispectral. Yep. And the, and the other aspects of remote sensing. All right. That's we, a, we will put a pin in that. That's a future geek out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mark. And one last thing before we go, uh, although we don't charge for the professional development hour you just received by listening to the podcast, the Public Works Nerds is not free. If you've listened to more than one episode, the cost is that you tell one colleague about the Public Works Nerds to help us grow our audience. Thank you.